Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. All righty. Welcome, welcome. Nonprofit news feed time. Got a Georgia Nick here. How's it going? We are talking about nonprofit news, best news from the best sector for, for April 24th. It's the week. And Nick, we're getting into it right away. We're talking about that Supreme Court potentially upending affirmative action. It seems like a big one. What's the nonprofit story here, though? Yeah, George, that's exactly right. So our top story today is that the nonprofit organization Students for Fair Admissions has filed a lawsuit against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, alleging discrimination in the admissions process on behalf of Asian and white students. The case is currently before the Supreme Court of the United States, and the outcome of that ruling may end the ability for institutions of higher education to engage in race-conscious admissions decisions, aka affirmative action. However, the motives and outcomes of this suit are pretty wide-reaching and a little bit complicated. ProPublica and the Yale Daily News report that Students for Fair Admissions received money from many different conservative dark money nonprofit vehicles, including Donors Trust, the Searle Freedom Trust, and the Sarah Scaife Foundation. So this network of foundations, DAFs, and other money maneuvering operations also have direct ties to Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, the conservative legal seat organization. Six of the nine sitting Supreme Court justices are current or former members of the Federalist Society, according to the Yale Daily News. And among recent reporting alleging Clarence Thomas's potentially unethical acceptance of expensive trips from conservative donor Harlan Crow, that reporting includes photographs of Thomas enjoying cigars with current Federalist Society co-chairman Leonard Leo. So the network of money moving through nonprofit vehicles to a nonprofit suing Harvard and UNC before the Supreme Court closes the full circle with potential ethical violations between Clarence Thomas and potentially other justices in relation to the Federalist Society's objective of essentially a conservative legal regime in the United States. So, George, there is a big nonprofit angle here. The folks bringing the suit, Students for Fair Admissions, is a nonprofit. The universities here, Harvard University and UNC, of course, nonprofits. Most universities on the United States are nonprofits, and this could have wide-reaching ramifications for them. And the dark money moving around these, these various vehicles, whether they're foundations or DAFs, donor advised funds, are directly related to, to nonprofits on the sector as well. So George, we laid out kind of a complicated web, a network of influence happening here, and the ramifications should the Supreme Court strike down affirmative action could be quite far-reaching. I mean, I don't know when you're watching this or listening to this, but it seems like the the deck has been stacked. You know, you have the Federalist Society with six of the nine justices. You've got significant money, it seems, coming into Students for Fair Admissions, which, you know, on the surface, I think they have 
interesting cases where you know you have now race being used in in negative ways to exclude certain populations which you know certainly is not without its problems but is the solution really burning down something that was created because of the need for you know diversity and the support of equality in our our education systems which by the way these education systems are as you mentioned nonprofits 501c3s public benefit for the public benefit okay so you can charge tuition to whatever level you choose to to run and there should be no expectation of supporting you know diversity supporting equality of a population i you know i think there's a lot lot to dig into here I think you I almost followed. I feel like we need this sort of map to follow the like the the dark money around, but you know the the Harlan Crow conservative donor seems to seems to come up again and again, but I I, I don't I think there's a lot of what I've seen universities preparing admissions offices for this shift because I don't think this has a long shelf life. I I think this gets overturned and I think there's a lot of nonprofit a lot of nonprofit profit universities they're gonna have to figure this out i don't even know what it means really in the admissions sector i think it doesn't mean anything until there's another layer of lawsuits that potentially happen and like petitions like you know all of the like chets out there being like oh i didn't get in i'm gonna sue because like they they discounted my race no offense to chet yeah george that's exactly right so all this case is narrow to higher education institutions and to be clear could dramatically change the admissions process, the ramifications for businesses and federal funded employers, there are some ramifications, not that they would have those ramifications would happen immediately, but they would invite more lawsuits and could potentially really kind of change hiring throughout the United States itself as well. So this is a story that we'll continue to keep on our eye on. This is a complicated topic. Affirmative action has been a sticky topic in American society for quite a while. However, I think it's worth pointing out that almost all of the players in deciding this are actually 501c3s, nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, in, and and it, it, this, is a, this is an influence operation. Whether or not it's illegal or not, I can't speak to. But at the end of the day, this is an attempt to, to use the legal system for conservative means. And it seems that the Supreme Court at this point is is likely to be going along with that. So we will, we'll put a pin in that for now and we'll actually take us to our next story. This is just going to be a, a quick follow-up to the story that we discussed last week. And this comes from reporting from CNN that the Supreme Court protects access to the abortion pill that was actually uh, put on kind of hiatus by a a federal judge. So the Supreme Court last Friday protected access to the widely used drug Mifepristone and granted a official stay of that Texas federal judge's ruling. And for now, subsequent actions that made it more easily accessible will remain in place while appeals play out. So this move is, quote, striking victory for the Biden administration and its allies and the abortion rights community. But I think that while this ruling potentially will 
in the future as well protect access to abortion medication. There is no doubt in my mind that different attempts to kind of attack abortion rights in this country will continue. There will be just a continued onslaught of of suits that particular players will will attempt to take to conservative, in this case, friendly federal judges. This is going to continue for a long time. And I think that Americans and advocacy organizations need to really not underestimate the role that the overturning of Roe v. Wade has had on our political and advocacy landscape. And (laughs) when that ruling came out, that was the beginning of what's going to be potentially a decades-long fight. And it and we've already seen the legislative impacts of Roe v. Wade potentially really damaging what were supposed to be conservative wins in the midterm. So if you're sitting there and you are a nonprofit advocacy organization working on politics or policy of some kind, access and issues around maternal health impact your constituents, <laughs> impact the communities you serve. These, what, 50% of America is 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 woman and people who can give birth so it's really important for organizations to stay on top of this because this is going to be at top of mind for a lot of people for a very long time and is not going to go away i would pay attention to the sort of border jumping this is a a huge overreach of of texas and saying hey not only is it illegal in texas but we're going to go after the fda to say like this drug that we know is involved with the rights of women across the United States is not allowed. And it's it's an overreach. And it's not the only overreach we're seeing. And so this is a big sort of flag that the, the Supreme Court, <clears throat> just this far after making the decision to be like, push the decision down to states, you know, the sort of states' rights maxis out there to say, hey, what happens if states infringe upon the rights of other states and constituents there? Because that is exactly what is happening. And it's not just limited to, you know, rights. You know, we've certainly seen it with, you know, marijuana laws, with marijuana access that, you know, it's not as simple as saying like, okay, let's shirk the responsibility as, you know, the United States as the Supreme Court to establish federal standards, frankly, that we can follow and to be like, oh, yeah, I'm sure all the states will play nicely. The truth is this isn't Europe. We're not like carefully watching the borders between all of these places. And there are real problems when you have got extreme conservative states and judges able to project power and force other states to follow their standards. And this is this is just the start of it. So, you know, watching closely, I was glad to see the Supreme Court said, you know what, we shouldn't have random federal judges overturning FDA decisions of food and drugs. Like, good. There you go. Positive. That was a positive. Yeah, George, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And yeah, I, I would just say back back to the previous point that you were making about this happening on a state-by-state basis is going to sow a lot of confusion. And there's going to be a need for a lot of education and legal outreach and just quite frankly, advocacy around these issues. Because as we speak, Florida is attempting to institute a six-week abortion ban, which is six weeks is before 
many women even know that they're pregnant, essentially outlawing it. And Florida was in some ways up until now a safe haven for other women in the South where they could access safe and legal abortions. So this is going to play out on a state-by-state level, and it's going to be really scary and really traumatizing for a lot of people. And I think it's important to pay attention and and to seek to 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 walk with and to provide community for people who are struggling right now. Abortion is quite frankly still a taboo issue in American society. People you know may have had an abortion and just may not be talking about it, right? So I think it's really important. Just be compassionate because there's a lot of people out there who need compassion both now and will continue to moving forward. All right, I can take us into our next story. And this one comes from the San Francisco Standard. And the story tells us that nonprofits across the state of California are scrambling for volunteer help as the number of willing volunteers has plummeted. And the article goes on to say that it's not just the Golden State that a, quote, severe volunteer shortage has swept across the United States. And they cite data that says that the national volunteer participation rate was just 23.2% in 2021, a 7% drop year over year, according to the most recent U.S. Census and an AmeriCorps survey. So this decrease in volunteerism is the largest seen since the, the survey started. Effectively, America's social safety net is, is at risk, considering how much nonprofit services rely on, on volunteer help. And we, George, being in this sector anecdotally and via data have been following this trend for a very long time. This is very apparent to any nonprofit professionals who work with volunteers or in community outreach or, or any of the above. So just adding some some data to that. Uh, and as well, independent sector, which produces research within the sector, along with the Do Good Institute, announced that the latest value of a volunteer hour is estimated to be $31.80, which is a 6.2% increase over 2021. You don't need to be a genius to figure out that that's pretty high. And the reason that's pretty high is because there is a shortage of volunteers. So, George, what's your take on this? Yeah, just to put it back into the numbers here, the the participation rate was was recorded at 23% in 2021, which was a 7% drop. And that's US Census and AmeriCorps surveying these data. And that, you know, decreases the largest since 2002, like they've been measuring since then. So we, you know, you have an entire recession in there, where it still didn't drop as much as it did. So there is a huge gap in the services that nonprofits promise their stakeholders with. And there are, I think, a lot of, of factors. We've covered this. We, you know, we had Volunteer Match on, actually, about a couple of years ago, talking about this. And you know, maybe we can circle back, but it is, is something that you see on the ground and certainly impacts the quality of services that nonprofits can provide and step in for, for governments. And yeah, like this is tremendously valuable, you know, that, that I love that the, again, independent sector.org does this research of the volunteer time value of $31 and 80 cents per hour. I always laugh about like specific numbers like that. I'm like, wait a minute, (laughs) how did you get so specific? But it was a 6% increase over 2021. So I think those percentage numbers, you're, you're right. You're like, wait, wait a minute, less volunteers and number of hours and value. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, but you know, 
pay attention to things that are touched by volunteering and see what your numbers are, I, I think is an interesting action point there. Yeah, George, I, I appreciate that analysis. And I'm sure we'll continue to follow this for years to come <laughs> and see how these or these trends take us. But I want to take us into our next article from The Guardian. And George, we recently celebrated Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. I'm sorry, I didn't get you anything next mm. year for sure. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> this article from The Guardian is titled, quote, appalling. Dennis Hayes, the American environmental activist who helped coordinate the first Earth Day in 1970, denounced the, quote, appalling environmental messaging by oil, gas, and other extractive extractive companies and said he hoped it did not distract attention from the threats posed by the climate crisis and biodiversity loss, which, quote, he compared to the threat of nuclear conflict during the Cold War. So, George, it seems like we have the OG Green Day environmentalist calling out big companies for using Earth Day to, to greenwash the original intention of the day formed by the environmental movement of the 1970s and talks about oil and gas companies kind of co-opting the message. And this follows a similar but pretty unsurprising theme that I think we follow on this podcast. There is greenwashing, there is sports washing, there's there's all sorts of washing wash and happen. <laughs> and we, you know, as as well, I will I will cite my sources. Recent corporate social responsibility is now a field. People have that job title. There are now, you know, socially conscious ETFs and index fund products for, for people who want to buy socially conscious. There is a corporate desire to be seen as doing good amongst Americans that are probably a little bit more focused on impact and real life consequences, maybe in years past. And here it seems that they're co-opting the green movement to shield themselves from, of course, irreparable environmental harm. But you know, you put a little tree logo here, spread some good messages there, you're going to be in the clear. Yeah, this this quote here from from Hayes is interesting, saying, I take some solace in the fact that I think relatively few people anywhere are motivated to accept sentiment behind, quote, Earth Day at Exxon. It just doesn't pass the giggle test, he said. In the 70s, they were focused on the fact that school children were not allowed to go outside for recess because the air was too filthy and that streams that, that people swam and fished in were no longer accessible because they were laced with poison and spraying pesticides and it goes on in this quote but you know i was i was pretty happy my kids were learning about earth day at school and pointing out trash for us to pick up so we were out there picking up picking up some trash out there so it does again hopefully give you hope but yeah there there's a a long list of of folks washing whatever they can and i think there are some good folks in the csr you know you're to call them out. I think there are some good folks in CSR roles in companies trying to steer organizations in the right direction, but I think it's a line to be careful with when you begin moving from steering to washing, we'll say. Mm, mm. I, I like the I like where this is going. This thread is I'm going. much safer in metaphors. Distract <laughs> <I can abstract laughs> away all manner of sin. Without a doubt. Well, while we're, we're, we're moving away from, from washing, why don't we talk about creating? 
because George, I have a feel-good story for you. And this one comes from KSN TV out of Wichita, Kansas, local KSNW, where the headline is Music Changes Lives. And the story talks about nonprofit Music Youth Partnership, which is a local 501c3 that harnesses the power for students to improve their academic and musical potential through music education and training. And the article talks about how folks, students, and and any number of folks can come and get musical training and and really highlights actually the, the benefits of music education. So just like the role of sports, music education can be a really grounding experience for youth, particularly struggling youth, a fantastic creative outlet. Studies and studies and studies show that music education has benefits, cognitive benefits, other behavioral benefits. So I just wanted to highlight a nonprofit doing music education. I myself am a musician. We have a couple of musicians here at Whole Whale. Music is something we really enjoy bringing to people. And like I know for me, it was such a tremendous an important part of my education and music education sees tremendous lack of funding increasingly in the United States. It's increasingly underfunded, just like the arts generally. So I personally want to highlight a nonprofit helping to bridge that gap and provide access to music for people who need it. Wonderful. Love it. Yeah. I also grew up with fortunate enough to have music education and I, I still find it valuable and look forward to you know, as a parent, when my kids begin to choose a loud instrument and practice it frequently at times that I'd rather they not. And I think it's an important rite of passage and improves brain development and our ability to process many other things. And so, yes, that is a, that is a good one. Quick shout out to our friends at Nonprofitist, nonprofit.ist. There's a huge hack actually, that I think is like out there for people that are thinking about thinking for RFPs, requests for proposals, writing those things is annoying. And you're not even sure like what you're trying to do. You're just trying to throw spaghetti on a wall and then hopefully it looks like a good RFP. There's a huge hack and it's called request for conversations, RFCs, request for conversations. What is it you're trying to do? Is it a fundraising campaign? Is it maybe some legal work with your nonprofit? Is it maybe board development? And you're like, what do we really need? Why not just go find that expert, have a conversation? They love talking with you about their expertise for free, by the way, and say, hey, what, what are the elements of this? And you will get such a better end result, even if it does lead to an RFP in the end by having that that intermediary step. So I encourage you to try out that hack. If you are planning a project, have the conversation. Request for conversations. They love it. Now, Nick, I do have a question for for you. You ready? All right. No. No, no. There's no way you can be ready. Did you actually, no, hold on. Did you hear about the Grammar Nonprofit's annual conference about the past performance impact of the future of education? No. It was intense. You know, like tenses, because it was like past, future, grammar. It's all there's there. There was that was a lot of a lot of tension there. Yeah, that was a good one. A I like that one. Well, that's what you get for making it to the end. Like, subscribe, leave comments. We love it, especially if they're nice. Don't bother with the mean ones. <laughs> See, ya, no mean comments. comments. <laughs> Bye. This has been using the whole whale podcast. 
If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 